Please turn with me to Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. You can also follow along on page 7 of your bulletin. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us, and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord, because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to make you ma what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O oh Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O oh Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. We're down to the <clears throat> last five weeks of our series. If you're new or visiting, uh, since last August, I can't believe it, since last August, we've been looking at passages in the Old Testament from the book of Genesis all the way to the end of the Old Testament that really show us one of the major applicative themes uh, in, throughout the entire Bible, that God works through brokenness, that God works through sin. And if we see that in the course of Scripture, we see that God works through our sin, God works through our brokenness. And today, we're looking at the book of Jonah. Now, <clears throat> Jonah is a tormented soul. Uh, he's a prophet, which means that God had called Jonah to preach against sin, to preach against wickedness. But here's the rub. Jonah is called to go to Nineveh. He's called to go to preach at the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. Now, why is that interesting? It's because Jonah is the only prophet in the Bible that wasn't called to preach to his own people. 
and he just hates the Assyrians. He hates them. But he knows God is a gracious God. So Jonah's not afraid that they won't respond. He's afraid that they will respond. And so from this chapter, we're going to learn three things. We're going to see three things. Three things about sin, about suffering, and salvation. Sin, suffering, and salvation. First, we're going to look at sin. Verse 1, God calls the Assyrians wicked. Later on in this passage, verse 5, there's a huge storm. And these sailors, they're pagan sailors. They're crying out to their own God. So the only person who actually really knows the God of the Bible here is who? It's Jonah. In verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. That's the Bible's technical way of saying that Jonah is a prophet. He was called by God. He was sent by God. He's a man of God. He's a praying person. He's a religious person. He's one of the good guys. But who's the main subject of this chapter? Who's the one that's running from God in this chapter? Who's the one, who's the main subject of this entire book? It's Jonah, the religious person. Jonah, the prophet. What does that tell us? You could have grown up in the church. You could have grown up knowing God, worshiping God, having even sensing a relationship with God and still be very, very far from God. Sin is way more complex, way more nuanced than we think. It's much more subtle and hidden. In fact, it's destructive in our lives because it's subtle and because it's hidden. On the outside, sin just looks like disobedience. God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is actually northeast, northeast from where Jonah is. But what Jonah does is he heads southwest. He heads southwest in the text. He goes down to Joppa. That's what it says. Literally the opposite direction that God calls him to go. And he boards the ship that heads west, west towards Tarshish. So what is sin? Sin is visibly, actively, outwardly running from God. But it actually goes deeper than that. It's way more nuanced than that. That's what we think it is. In verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now, throughout the Bible, God's word is very dynamic. What do I mean by that? Dy to, have dy to be dynamic means there's a power and a flow. So when we say that God's word is dynamic, that means his word has power. The word itself has power. His speaking has power. When we say, let there be light, somebody has to go and do the work to turn on the lights, but that's not how God works. When God says, let there be light, his word has creation power, and there's light. Light happens. So prophets, they're always beginning with, the word of the Lord came to me. The word of the Lord came to this prophet. And prophets, they always end with, thus saith, thus spoketh. It's his word, that his word has power. Thus saith the Lord. But you don't see that here. In verses 1 to 2, the word of the Lord came to Jonah to go and preach against Nineveh. And in verse 3, he runs the opposite direction. In other words, sin is more than just an outward thing. It's more than just acts of disobedience. That's just what we do. Because when we disobey, we're actually going against what we're called to do, we're going against what we've been created to be. You're going against your design as if God said, let there be light, and it stays dark. You see, that would make God, that would make a mockery of God. That would dishonor God. It actually goes against his nature, his power, who he is. Sin is a refusal then to live in a way that you were designed to live, designed to live that honors the way you were created and designed to be. 
because we were created in the image of God. And it began ever since the first book of the Bible, that's the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter three, in the Garden of Eden, it's not, God speaks to Adam, God speaks to Eve, and he says, I want you to obey. Don't eat of the fruit of that tree. But then the serpent comes, and the serpent comes, and he tempts Eve. He tempts Eve, and it's not just about the fruit. God says, don't eat from this tree. And Eve looks at this fruit, and it's pleasing to her eye. It's attractive, and it's useful, meaning it's logical, it's rational to take of this tree. In other words, this is a good thing. So why is God telling me not to take it? And so she starts to distrust God. Why would God say no? Why is God making me wait? Why is he withholding this good thing, this pleasant thing, this useful thing? The serpent then says, it's desirable for gaining wisdom. Why would he withhold this thing from me? And so she distrusts God. Today we say, well, you said this, and you're a leader. You said this, but that leader said that. I talked to this other person from this other church, and they said that. I'm going to do what that person said, because that's what I want. After all, they're leaders too. I agree with him. He must be right. Eve is looking at this fruit. It's attractive and reasonable and logical in her mind. But that's the essence of sin, you see. Sin is telling the creator. Sin is telling God, you are holding me back. You are holding me down. Sin is saying, God, I know what you're saying, but I'm going to go this way instead. I'm going to do this anyway. Because that, what I'm pursuing is an inc- that I want to increase and build my potential and increase and build my freedom and my joy. And to do what you do, you're holding me down. You're holding me back. There's this inherent distrust. And as a result, in verse 3, what happens? Jonah flees. God tells him, I want you to go northeast to Joppa and what, uh, to, to, uh, uh, to Nineveh. And instead, he goes down. He runs from God. Now, think about this. Jonah, he's a prophet, which means he's a religious person. Which means, if you're a religious person, you would know, well, isn't God anywhere? Is he, isn't he everywhere? Isn't he omnipresent? Why would you, that's foolish. Why would he still run? I mean, he must know that about God. And the answer is because sin is not necessarily running from God geographically. It's running away from God relationally. That's what it is. How do we know that? Verse 3, it says, Jonah ran away from the Lord. But in the Hebrew, in the actual Hebrew, what it says is that he ran away from the face of God, from the face of the Lord. What does that mean? It's a horizontal theme to seek God's face, to know God's face, to be in God's face. It's another way of saying, I desire intimacy with you. I desire intimacy with God. Whenever you fall in love with somebody, the first time you fall in love with that person who is your spouse, what do you say? You just want to see that person. It's not enough to talk to them on the phone. It's not enough to chat with them or to, to text them. Chatting, that's like a thing that we used to do like back in the 90s, you know? Uh, and it's not enough to do that. You want to see their face. Even in today's generation, in, in modern society, we, it's, there's nothing better than seeing the person's face. It's a horizontal theme that runs all the way to the ancient times in the Bible in desiring intimacy. Psalm 27, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Why does the psalm say that? Because the ancients knew you don't go to God for blessing. In our modern day, in our modern society, we pray, and when we pray, we pray for things. We go to God for things. We want things from God. We want to be blessed by God. 
But the psalmist, the ancients, they know you don't go to God for the blessing. The presence of God is the blessing. We just sang that. You probably overlooked it while we were singing. We just sang that. The presence of God is the blessing. We say, we often say, get out of my face. What is that? What are we saying? I don't want to be near you. I don't want to be intimate with you. I don't want to look at you. You see, it's not a geographical thing. We're not saying, well, I want you to go to that place over there. What we're saying is, I don't want relationship. It's a relational thing. If intimacy, to seek intimacy is the blessing, the intimacy of God, then to not have intimacy with God is the curse. So to run from the face of God is to run from the intimacy of God, to run from the presence of God. We're saying, I want to be free from you. I want to get away from your grip. That's what we're saying. Jonah's physical distancing, it represents a spiritual distancing. And the Bible teaches that whenever we do that, it always leads to brokenness and misery. So in verse 3, he goes down to Joppa. Then he goes aboard a ship. In the actual Hebrew, it says he goes down onto the ship. So he goes down to Joppa, down onto the ship. Verse 4, there's this big storm. Where's Jonah? He's He's below deck. He's below deck. He's down below deck where he lays down, and then he falls asleep. He literally goes down. You see? You think God is calling to Jonah, and what does Jonah do in response? He goes down, then he goes down, then he goes down, then he's go, he goes all the way. He lays all the way down. He falls asleep. I just want to be relationally as far from God as I physically can. You see that? That's sin. It's more than just an act. You can't just apologize for acts of sin because sin is more about what you want. When the word of the Lord is clear to you, when the word of the Lord is saying, this is where you're going, and you're saying, no, I'm going this way. So what do you do? We get resentful. We go down and down and down and away. That's what we do. We're relationally distancing ourselves from God. More than about overt acts, sin is about covert pride, covert anger, covert desires. And your soul, what happens is because there's this corrosion of the soul that has already taken hold, and and it's eroding you away, and that's what's kind of driving you in that direction. And you're going down and down and down and down and down. You almost kind of, you kind of put yourself to sleep away from the face of God, away from intimacy with God. And this isn't somebody who doesn't know God. Remember, this isn't someone who's never heard of God. This is a leader of God's people. This is a leader in the church. This is a teacher in the church. This is a person who's a praying person, somebody who's known to, to bring wisdom And so if Jonah can be like this, anybody in this room can be like this. Jonah isn't far from God because he doesn't know God. He's far from God because he believes he knows God. That means you can be in the church, follow all the rules, still be as far further, all the while saying, I want to be a witness, I want to evangelize, and be further and further away from God, you're just going lower and down and down and down and down and down. Is that you? Is that you? Distant from the church, geographically maybe, 
but it's because you're distant from God relationally. Or maybe you're in the church. So geographically, you may be close to God and close to people who know God, but you're really so distant relationally when it comes to what you want, what you pursue apart from God. Take the necessary steps right now. Stop the distancing. Stop distancing yourself relationally from God. Well, that's hard, Pastor. You see, I've got finals. Or I've got, I've got a family. I've got, I've got friends. I've got finances. You see, look. Your relationship with God is broken. Your distance, your distance from God. I mean, anytime you want to kind of bridge that kind of a gap, Anytime you want to fix something that's broken, it, it's going to take some work. Any relationship, it's going to take work. It doesn't, we think like, you know, you know how hard it is to shape and repair broken relationships in your life. Some of us, we don't even want to, it's too hard, it's so far gone, and that's understandable. Well, then how much more with an infinite God? We think it was just going to resolve everything with a prayer. You see? To rebuild what sin has damaged and corroded in the soul, you got to remember the famous prayer of St. Augustine. He prayed, it was based on an old, an age-old debate, but he prays, give what you command. In other words, give me the strength to do what you are commanding of me to be and to do. So how does God bring Jonah back? That's the second point, where there's suffering. There's a storm. Now, most of us, we believe that when you get a storm, when you start to suffer, God must be punishing you. But think about this. If that were the case, Jonah would have drowned. You see, he would have said in chapter 2, which we're not going to go into, he would have said, I get it. I deserve this, and you're doing it to me. You know, help me to change because, you know, I'll, I'll change because, you, you know, I, I've, I've run so far from you, and I deserve this. And this is my punishment, but that's not what he says. If sin, was, if sin is complex, if sin is that nuanced, then your suffering and the storms are also super complex and they're nuanced. What's the storm? You have an agenda, you have a plan, you're going in a direction. Then something happens and it either slows you down dramatically or it stops you in your tracks or it diverts you completely. You see that, right? Something kind of makes it stop or pause, maybe fall to the ground. Sometimes we're crawling on the ground, rolling around on the ground. Another way of saying that is this. A storm is a loud, a loud interruption of your life agenda where you think the purpose is going to bring you down when it's really a holy intrusion uh, into your hidden desires for the purpose of bringing you back. We think storms are loud interruptions of our life agenda where the purpose is vengeance, bring us down, hold us back when it's really a holy intrusion into your hidden desires for the purpose of bringing you back. It's your life agenda that's bringing you down. And there's rescue. And sometimes that rescue, especially when we don't hear well, especially when we don't listen well, well, God has to intrude. You see, you see, if you just see it as an interruption that's going to bring you down, 
then you're just going to beat yourself up or you're going to take it out on other people or you're going to take it out on the world or you're going to take it out on God. But that's just going to drive you further and further and further away from God. Is that what honors God? No, that's not. God is doing all this for his glory and for your good. 10,000 things every day for his glory and for your good. He's actually trying to heal you. You think he's trying to break you. He's actually trying to heal you because you're broken. That's why you're far, you see? And, and see, what happens is we fall further and further into self-pity and alienation and isolation. You see that? Anger and brokenness and misery because you think God is trying to increase that distance. He's trying to let you go, release you, just cut you loose, increase the distance between he and yourself when he's actually trying to decrease that distance and he's coming near. Anytime there's turbulence in your life, when your boat starts to rock a little bit, that's God coming near. You don't believe me? Man, just look at the first two or three chapters of any of the Gospels when Jesus is being born. Joseph's life becomes a mess. Mary, his mother, his life, her life becomes a mess. Everybody who comes near that whole kind of episode or narrative, their lives become messy and turbulent. Why? Because God's coming into the world, and he's coming into your life. That's the storm, you see. It's a holy intrusion into those hidden desires in your life for the purpose of bringing you closer, purpose of bringing you back. That's what it is. So in verse 5, these sailors, they're all crying out to their own gods. I mean, they are absolutely terrified. Why? Because if you don't know the God of the Bible, then you must know you're alone. If there is no God of the Bible, you are utterly and completely alone. So this captain, he's frantic. He goes to Jonah. He wakes him up, and he tells him, you need to call out to your God. That's what everyone's doing right now. Call out to your own God. Maybe one of these guys will hear us. And right there, Jonah gets it. He remembers. He remembers the call. What's the meaning of the storm? Storms are life metaphors, really, experiential metaphors that reveal, one, how helpless we really are in the world. In other words, we are all out at sea. That's a metaphor. That sea is filled with rage and wrath. It's dangerous. It is uncertain. In fact, all through the Bible, anytime you see the word sea or waters, it kind of connotes. There's this theme. It's one, another one of those horizontal themes in the Bible. It's a, it's a, it's a theme of uncertainty and darkness and kind of being out of control and, and uncertain. You're just helpless. But secondly, storms also reveal what you cling to as your rescue, because the moment you kind of head towards a storm and it's bad, you start to look for anchors. You start to look for things that are going to keep you at bay. You see that? In other words, that's your real God. This captain's saying, call out to your God right now, because this is it. The storm is here. It's what the Bible calls an idol. Storms reveal what you really believe when you're in trouble. When you're in trouble and you're in it, like it's dark, and you're quaking, storms reveal what you really believe. What is your real help? What do you really cling to, or who do you cling to for life? You see, ever since the Garden of Eden, and that's way in the beginning, we've learned that we've been pushed out to sea, driven out of paradise, and this world is a dangerous place. It's a violent place. So we've been building rescue boats Pretty much as a, it's not a hobby, it's a, it's a life pursuit. We've been building rescue boats ever since the beginning of time. And they're all inadequate, and they're all insufficient. And some of us, we've got some pretty nice boats. 
We got some pretty nice boats. Those boats are filled with degrees and dollar signs and, and lots of people surrounding us. Those boats are nice neighborhoods. Those boats are large, and we look at square footage because we think that that is what's going to protect us in the storm. Oh, we surround ourselves with great jobs and great career paths, getting to know the right people and making sure that we are navigating everything the right way. Oh, we are so particular and so thoughtful. We are so thoughtful about every step we're going to take. And if you're not, I mean, think about it. Some of us, we're not as thoughtful in our careers, but we're thoughtful about our families. Oh, we're thoughtful about every move we make, life decisions around our children and how they're going to grow up, how we're going to nurture them and raise them so they will have the right lifeboats around them. And we just kind of train them to value those things that we value. It's all driven by fear. You know why? Because you know the world is a dangerous place. It's a violent place. It's a wrathful place. It is an uncertain world. And we've been building these really nice big boats, but they can't save you. Look, let me just speak to you and just say it to you straight. You know this. There is no lifeboat out there that can protect you from illness. No lifeboat out there. Because the thing about disease, the thing about the ones that will get you in the end, you've got no protection from. We don't even know how if you've got it. And I know that's a hard, I mean, some of us, we, we suffer. We've been suffering because we have family members. Maybe you yourself have suffered from that, and you know then. It is grave. We know that there's no amount, there's nothing that can prevent you from, prevent illness from happening to you. There's nothing that can prevent tragedy, accidents. Nothing can prevent you from, that's the very nature of accidents. Insurance policies have, have what do they call that? You know, an act of God, right? We know that. Nothing can protect you from aging and from death. Like a storm, they kind of come out of nowhere. And by the way, a lot of us, this is the reason why we live in large cities. We love the city for what cities offer us. Jobs, career paths, wealth, relationships, and status. These are all lifeboats that we love to cling to, and some of them are really nice. And we tend to exploit the city to build those things, these elaborate lifeboats. We spend a lifetime building these lifeboats. This is our ark, what's going to shield us from the storm, and they're all inadequate. And there's no amount of wealth or relationships or beauty that can protect you from the rage and the wage and the wrath and the danger of sin. Death. What's going to save you? What's our salvation? That's the last point. Jonah, he's awakened from his sleep by the storm, and people are crying out. How does he respond? Verses 7 to 9, the sailors ask Jonah, who are you, essentially? Who are you? And Jonah responds, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord. Why? He knows. God is already working in his conscience. He knows he's been running. God's working in his conscience, and his conscience has started to act up. Some of us, we're in there right now. God is working in your conscience. Our consciences are not perfect. They're broken too. 
But God, when he gets in there and he's working in it, we start to wake up. And sailors, these sailors, they ask, well, what should we do? Verses 11 to 12, Jonah says, I tell you what, pick me up, throw me into the sea. In other words, I can't let you die. I cannot let you die because of the wrath that I deserve. In other words, what is he doing? This is now what? We're now around, you know, verse 12 here. Where Jonah's finally starting to wake up to the point of surrender. He's starting to surrender to the Lord. Throughout the Bible, we just said that the seas, the storm, the waters, they were considered uncontrollable forces, uncertain and mysterious forces, but they're also synonymous with the wrath of God. So Jonah's seeing the storm, and he says, that is the wrath. And he says, I'm going to throw myself at the mercy of God. I'm going to surrender. The mercy of God, because God has found me out. And so before, Jonah, he went down and down and away relationally from God. Now he's saying, well, now I've got to go all the way down. I'm going to go down even deeper, but this time towards surrender. Some of us, we're trying to move, we're trying to move up and up and up and up on our own, apart from God. And so it, you know, relationally, we're going down and down and down and down. But the only kind of down that you need is to be down on your knees. Surrender. Before, Jonah was going down relationally away from God. But then the storm comes. And Jonah's now saying, well, I need to go to the ultimate depths. I need to go all the way down. I'm going to throw myself at God's mercy because he still knows God. He says, I need to surrender. The first time he went down, it, led to, it just brought brokenness and misery. But this time, he's saying, I'm going to give in. I'm going to surrender. It leads to salvation. Because it wasn't until Jonah surrendered that he realized he's been just looking to control his own life. You know, all of life, it's just a battle for who gets control over what you are and what you do. That's all of life. And he realized that he's been looking for control and power and identity away from God, apart from God. But God is power. God is identity. You see that? God is control. So he's looking at control and saying, no, I want control. I'm looking at power and he's saying, no, I want power. I'm looking at identity. God says, I am who I am. And he says, I want my own identity. And he realizes that. You see that? It's not until he gave up control like this, in the chaos, in the suffering, in the disorder, that's when he found real control and real power. That's when you see his poise. The whole ship is going awry. That ship is breaking apart. Jonah says, throw me in. I'll take the hit. There's the poise. I will go. I will surrender. What happens to Jonah? He goes overboard, and a fish comes and swallows Jonah. It looks like death. Being swallowed up by a fish, it looks like death. And that fish, what we understand, goes all the way to the depths. Jonah prays later, you've taken me to the depths of Sheol. I mean, he goes all the way down to Sheol, the depths, it says. But that Although it looks like death, it's really a salvation. That fish was sent to save him. 
It's a reminder that God is always in pursuit. He's always in pursuit. He's always looking to heal. And it's never on the basis of our merit. It's not on the basis of Jonah's merit. It's not on the basis of his goodness. It's in spite of his goodness. It's in spite of whatever he thinks he is. Remember, Jonah's not looking for God at this point. He's not repenting. He's not even praying yet, at least not yet. He's just running from God, and yet God sends this fish in the storm to cut through all the darkness and the chaos. He needed a big fish to cut through all of that to bring Jonah back to safety. Not on the basis of Jonah's commitment to God. I mean, he was not committed. But it's on the basis of God's commitment to Jonah. And so as far as Jonah ran from God, God never let Jonah go. It was never too far out of God's reach. God's reach is even further. That is the faithfulness of God. And so Jonah surrenders himself to the storm. Jonah surrenders himself to the chaos, and the sailors, they get the calm. Jonah surrenders himself, you know, to the power of the water. The sailors, they get the peace. The fish takes him all the way down, and yet that fish was his safety and his rescue. What does that mean? Sometimes we could feel, we could be distant from God. We could be running away from God. And then that storm comes, and sometimes things just compound. So it gets worse and worse and worse. And it isn't until Jonah, like Jonah, we hit rock bottom. Jonah's at the bottom of the earth. That's when we realize that our relationship with God is all we have. And that's when we realize our relationship with God is all we need. Then it becomes your calm. Then it becomes your poise. What's our salvation in the midst of our storms when we, and we run from God all the time, we're always hiding from God? What would be our salvation For Jonah, he got the fish. Centuries later, in Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees, these are the religious people, like Jonah, they come to Jesus. They go to Jesus Christ and they say, we want to see a miracle. Validate who you are. Show us a miracle. Jesus says, none will be given except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was uh, three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man must be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What does that mean? Well, Jesus is saying, I am the greater Jonah. God called Jesus. God calls Jonah and says, go to the wicked people, and he disobeyed. God goes to Jesus and says, go to these wicked people, and Jesus obeys all the way to the end, not at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. And in Matthew chapter 8, here's Jesus. He's in a boat, and he's with some sailors, some knowledgeable sailors. There's some of them as disciples. And all of a sudden, they encounter this furious storm. There's the wrath. There's the rage. And the disciples, what do they do? They cry out to Jesus. They're crying out to their God. Save us. We're going to drown. What does Jesus do? He's just down. He's sleeping. He's the greater Jonah. But then he gets up, and what does he do? He rebukes the winds, and the seas grow calm. 
But Jesus, he's not sleeping because he's trying to get away from God. Jonah, he sleeps because he's trying to get away from God. Jesus, he's sleeping because he's so intimate with God. He's so connected to God that there's poise. It gave him a confidence. It gave him a strength and a poise. Look at the poise of Jesus. Look at the calm of Jesus, the peace of Jesus. Look at the power of Jesus in the storm. And so here's Jonah. Jonah's sent by God, and he goes down and down and down because of his sinfulness. But Jesus Christ, he is the king. He is the king. He's also sent and he comes down. The high king comes down. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He came to that which was his own. In other words, Jesus Christ, the high king, came down. He, God called, and he obeyed, and he came not to bring judgment and wrath to sinners, but to absorb the judgment and wrath of sinners. So why was he so poised? Knowing what he would endure, why was he so poised? On the boat, Jesus, he looks at the storm and he says, what does he say? He just calms the the storm with his word. Why? Because his word has power. He is God. And he's looking at the storm. He says, this isn't a storm. A storm? You're afraid of this storm? This is no, I'm going to show you a real storm. Notice he doesn't say, throw me overboard. I'm going to throw myself to the mercy of the ways. Now he just calms it with his word because his word has creation power. But this is a small storm compared to the storm that Jesus would face on the cross. You see that? Because on the cross, there was another storm. On the cross, there was darkness, physically dark for hours. On the cross, there was an earthquake, so much so that the temple curtain the, it, the temple curtain tore in two. Tombs were uprooted. It was a big storm. And while Jesus Christ was on the cross, everyone is scurrying and running. Jesus Christ is on the, on the cross, enduring that physical storm. But that wasn't even the storm that he was enduring. He was enduring the cosmic storm. On the cross, Jesus Christ was receiving the punishment, the penalty over our sins. And the people around, they're saying, well, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. In other words, what they're saying is, go cry out to your God. Here's a storm. This is the ultimate storm. Cry out to your God. This is your moment. And he did. You know what he said? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, Jonah got the fish. Jonah got rescue. Jesus Christ drowned in the ultimate storm of God's wrath. And so what he's crying out, he's saying, where is my rescue? Who is my rescue? As if God is saying, get out of my face. And so he turns his face away from his son. Jesus, metaphorically, so Jesus Christ is saying, why have you forsaken me? I'm suffering the brokenness and misery of being separated from my God. And now I am totally, utterly completely alone. That means Jesus Christ, the high king, came down from his throne, down as a baby. He didn't come on a throne. He came in a manger, down on a, in a manger, down in poverty, down in homelessness. He was brought down in his arrest. I mean, today in our cancel culture, we love to see leaders go down, and he is brought down in his arrest, down in humiliation, and when he was lifted on the, on the cross, That means he went all the way down to the ultimate depths of suffering the wrath of God. Jonah later on, 
He prays in the belly of the fish. He says, I'm at the bottom. But Jesus Christ went to the ultimate deaths. And he was down ultimately in burial. He went all the way down. He died. Jonah, he threw himself into the mercy of God. He surrendered himself into mercy of God, and so does Jesus, the greater Jonah. Except God was absent for him. There was no mercy. Why? So that we, friends, so that we, I mean, we are so good at running from God and hiding from God. We are so good. We hide from each other. Those covert things, our covert desires, we're constantly just trying to play the game of trying to convince our friends and ourselves that we're doing it for noble reasons. But we are so good at running and hiding. Why? I mean, why did Jesus die on the cross, forsaken by God, no mercy? Why? So that we can plunge ourselves into the sea of God's love and his calm. We can anchor ourselves. The Hebrews author says we have that hope as an anchor for our souls, firm and secure. That is our calm. It's nothing that we could create or do for ourselves because we are in the sea. There's no anchor that will go that deep unless you plunge it, that anchor, unless you plunge it into the love of Christ, the mercy of God. Surrender to that. When you do, then you will experience true calm and true poise and real power the real presence of God, because that is the blessing. No matter where you are in the storm, we pray for the lesser blessing. Take away the storm, we say. But the blessing of God is his presence in the storm, you see. It's more important than any of the other gods that we can pursue, more important, more powerful than any other lifeboat that we can build. So look to Jesus Christ who plunged himself in the only storm, the only storm that can truly drown you, death apart from God. And when you look at the cross, you see, oh, there's the love of God. I can anchor it to that. There's the worth that I have in God. He pursued me. There's the only worth that you need. And when you do, no matter the storm in your life, you will find poise. Growing up uh, around a lot of children, running in camp for decades, there's an old song that we used to sing. With Christ in my vessel, I can smile at the storm, smile at the storm, smile at the storm. With Christ in my vessel, I can smile at the storm until he guides me home. Let's pray together.